It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This podcast contains explicit language. Welcome back once more to Candidate Confessional, the podcast that Donald Trump called the classiest podcast he's ever heard. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis, and I'm pretty sure he described it as a three-star Sheridan. That's fine, as long as it had, like, what, free Wi-Fi, continental breakfast? It had memory foam, so it sounds pretty good. That works for me. So for this podcast, listener, we want to take you back to election night 2008. Believe it or not, the country had just elected its first African-American president. Democrats were actually making gains in Congress. Crazy. And Washington was so excited there were drum circles on New Street. I may have seen one of those drum circles. I think you were dancing in them, like in the center. I think you just revealed too much. I did, sorry. Okay. Now, even before Obama took office, you could sense troublehead, right? The economy was absolutely cratering, and he wanted a stimulus bill on his desk by the time he was in the Oval Office. But Democrats didn't just want to respond to a crisis. They wanted to actually enact policy. Exactly. They wanted to pursue health care reform and cap-and-trade legislation. It was an eventful, really, a crazy two years. The question always was, could the party make it work politically? I think the answer lies in your phrase, cap-and-trade legislation. <laughs> Which brings us to this week's guest, Tom Perriello. Tom Perriello had been elected in 2008 in Virginia's conservative 5th District. Now, he was a Democrat, but really... He was an unapologetic progressive, and he had this crazy notion, right, that rather than moderate his positions, he was going to actually vote for things that progressives wanted and then go back home and defend the hell out of them. And keep in mind, two weeks after he took office, Republicans were airing attack ads against him. But he still went back to his district, returning on weekends to persuade coal miners and conservatives about green energy jobs and the stimulus bill and still having to deal with death threats over the health care bill. It was a dark time for sure. But in short time, Perriel's election became sort of a test for Obama Democrats everywhere. Could they win by embracing the president rather than running away from him? Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stunn. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. What we're going to do here is, is something a little bit different than what we normally do, which is we want to start with your win. Uh, we usually focus on losses, but I think it's important to understand your loss through the lens of your win in 2008. So tell us about that night where you uh, emerged victorious, and tell us about your district a little bit, too. Yeah. 
Well, in a way, we never really got the election night euphoria because we headed straight into a recount. Um, you know, we had uh, which was fascinating because this uh, historic moment's happening. Obama's getting elected. Virginia has gone blue for the first time since the Civil Rights Act had passed, uh, and this was all going around on around us. And obviously, we were incredibly engaged with that. But CNN had actually called the race against me earlier in the night, and then they had to pull back the call. And so we were, you know, it was one of those things where you can. Uh, you know, be so exhausted because there's a finish line in place, and then you find out that the finish line just got extended uh, a few weeks. It's I always think of it as being that scene in uh, in the Blues Brothers when they drive the car all over and they finally get to the tax assessor's office and the car falls apart into yeah. a thousand pieces. That was meant to be us yeah. on on election night, but then we found out we had to Take raise a hundred thousand yeah. dollars uh, for lawyers and get people out to twenty two separate counties uh, all by six a.m. the next morning to ensure that. Uh, there was not some effort to um, play games with uh, with the vote and the recount, um, but uh, and and that actually is a segue perhaps into the district itself, which is the size of New Jersey. I mean, it's a a massive area in central and southern Virginia, and it's a bit of a a microcosm of the United States because the northern part of the district, which includes Charlottesville and the University of Virginia, is very sort of mid Atlantic, solidly blue area, a college town. Then you go down through the Bible Belt, literally Jerry Falwell's uh, area in Liberty University, um, and then you move into uh, essentially the Rust Belt, which is the old tobacco, furniture, and textile manufacturing part of Virginia, uh, where you'd seen massive uh, layoffs and, and uh, outsourcing of jobs and extremely hard hit economically. Um, so you got a, a fascinating cross-section of different politics, not just the traditional right-left, but some of what we now think of as sort of the populist uh, to uh, to corporatist divide as well, and that didn't line up naturally with uh, you know with some of the uh, partisan divide. So it was fascinating. You know, when I got in the race, we were thirty six percent behind, I think, in the polls thirty four, thirty six behind, <laughs> um, and we went with a very grassroots heavy campaign and. Twelve months later, I think we were only thirty-two percent behind. So, uh, <laughs> and then, um, well, how did you find? When, when did the up. recount end, and uh, what did you do uh, when you were declared the victor? <laughs> well, it's actually just thinking. I, I, I've, there are very few things that I want to go back and and relive from the political experience. <laughs> but the next day, we actually did five separate press conferences in five of the media markets in the district, and I think in the first one. Uh, we were down 800 votes, and in the second one, we had gone to 300 votes, and then 35 votes, and in the next one, I think we went up four votes, and then it went up to there to about 700 vote margin, 727. Not that did I did. You think remember. about just declaring yourself the winner after the fourth one? Oh, we one did. We with did four votes. Oh, of course, we did. <laughs> so uh, if you were, like, waiting. Yeah, we clearly won, and because we were announced, we we were up about 2,000 votes on election night, and then there'd been an error in one of the machines, and so we went down. So we just sort of stuck with the the victory message from the night before, but. Sure. I, I'm quite confident my body language from those five press conferences probably <laughs> changed uh, dramatically along with the bags under my eyes. Um, so uh, it was another few weeks of lawyers playing games okay. and a uh, few changes. Because we had heard about an impromptu parade through Charlottesville. And, and, and corking of done. champagne on the streets. There were people who were pretty excited because <laughs> your district had not voted for a Democrat in eons. It was um, an interesting night in Charlottesville. Uh, I actually still remember because it was one of the first times I felt like um, 
uh, a politician in the bad sense of the word was that everybody wanted this rousing victory speech. And I knew privately that we were about to go down in the vote counts, but oh. wanted to tell my supporters, give them the, the cathartic moment. Uh, this wasn't in front of cameras. This was out and about and just sort of gave this rousing speech, uh, completely acting like I was confident <laughs> we were going to win uh, when, in fact, uh, we were we were quite concerned. So there was it was an amazing feeling that night. It really was and, and continued to be. Uh, the recount actually ended. This may be part of what you mean. Uh, ended up being finalized right around the time all the Christmas parades around the district were happening. Okay. So then I was going out and being in those uh, those parades. But it was a big deal to to be represented. And keep in mind, the southernmost city in my district, Danville, was the capital of the Confederacy after Richmond fell. Um, it was uh, what Martin Luther King called one of the most um, viciously segregated cities in America. Um, so for the African-American population uh, of Southside to see Barack Obama elected, to see him elected with votes from Virginia, and to see a congressperson who was fully embracing that and not pushing away uh, at every chance to get meant a lot. Um, and I think one of the more significant things I did that you can't quantify was, um, you know, continuing to stand with him when his popularity plummeted. Do you recall like a moment at that after your victory and you started going to the parades? Did you have like a what do I do now moment? Like now I have to do the job that I was elected for. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you were Robert moment? Redford. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was more or less a twenty four seven state of mind there for a, a brief period of time, but. Uh, in a deadly serious sense, of course, we were headed into the worst economic crisis of modern history and an area that was already economically hard hit. Uh, you were talking about hundreds of thousands of job losses across the country, people getting foreclosed on. Um, and what people said to me about the, the three weeks of getting the stimulus together was that it was like an entire term of Congress in three weeks. And I had no reference point, uh, but it ends up it really was like that. Uh, and so it's everything from like picking your staff and, yeah. and you know figuring out where you're supposed to show up. And um, I literally had to scrounge around money to pay for the security deposit for my apartment up here because I'd spent everything that I had on the campaign. And, <laughs> oh uh, so you know I still have my student loans to pay and everything. So it was uh, it was a crazy moment. I think it's also one of those first tests for people. Because uh, everyone tells you essentially to fire your campaign staff. You've got to bring on professional campaign people. Don't bring your friends up with you. And like a lot of things in life, that's half true and half really, really bad advice. I mean you talked about three this three-month legislative calendar where – Three week. Three week, I mean, uh, legislative calendar where the stimulus was passed. And here you are. You show up. You're a new guy already. Give us – try to give us a sense of what – that climate was like? Because I think people don't quite understand how tense it was. Uh, it was insane. Um, if you recall, President Obama, of course, has not been sworn in at that point. He doesn't get sworn in until the 22nd or whatever it is. Yeah. And he wanted the stimulus on his desk uh, when he got sworn in. So basically everything that put that together um, was taking place before he had formally taken office. Um, they went up with negative ads against me already uh, in that period it of time. Took two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Two, two weeks. weeks. That's uh, not bad, what right? Were the ad, what were the ads about? 
it was. Uh, Had you already said something's dumb? Like, <laughs> the gotcha. A classic like, like gap. Yeah. I'd started that process years ago. <laughs> um, but no, it was really. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was about the stimulus and this idea that we were going to um, steal your money and and spend it all on uh, lavish uh, palaces for Nancy Pelosi or something, <laughs> and the, uh, and treehorn frogs and the and the stimulus or something of that variety. And I think they made a, a correct Machiavellian decision that they. There was this extremely talented group of new people who'd come in, many of them not from traditional political backgrounds, and that if they had time to really get to know the voters uh, as human beings, uh, that that would really lock in uh, a chance, uh, the benefits of incumbency. And they really went for the jugular uh, early on that. Did you realize that like right away when they did the tech ads, were like, oh, they're trying to pin me down already? It was not subtle. So, no. yeah, I think because uh, <laughs> most people would say, oh, wow, I'm a year in, you know, 50 weeks uh, from you know, re-election here. That's a wasted attack ad. I mean, that's not worth, you know, any money because people forget about it. But it seems to like you were saying it was a tactical decision designed to just throw you off. Well, I think this was part of a broader decision that, you know, Cantor and others made at the time, which was which was effectively a scorched earth policy yeah. against the president. You know, they Cantor had really learned this from the Mark Warner experience, right? So Mark Warner came in as governor of Virginia after a governor had blown a huge hole in the deficit, made it, you know, all this sort of disastrous stuff. Warner comes in, cuts a deal with the Republicans, bipartisan deal to balance the budget, make Virginia the best managed state, best state in the uh, country to raise a family and all of these incredible things. And Cantor's lesson from that was we can never let that happen mm -hmm. uh, again. Um, because, of course, the bipartisan support helped create Warner as a as a really untouchable force in Virginia politics for a while. And so I think his takeaway from that was you can never give this guy his historic opportunity to deliver on a bipartisan deal with these results. So, so that's the climate before even Obama takes office because these attack ads are being run. He's not even inaugurated yet. You're, st you're serving because Congress comes in earlier. How do you possibly craft uh, $850 billion stimulus in that? Yeah. Um, well, and one last word on that and then uh, about the stimulus was, you know, at first we really had this hope that we were going to get along with the new Republican class as well. And they were really reined in from even talking to us. I mean, it was a, it was like the, you know, the parents on the schoolyard saying you're not allowed to, t to play with those kids or something. Did you have members say I can't talk to you? It was made clear. <laughs> um, and of course, the, the votes as well. I mean, there was basically uh, when you think about the idea that the country was in total economic freefall. You had a president who had just been elected with a strong mandate, um, and you had a stimulus that by all accounts was a set of pretty Republican-friendly ideas. I mean, it was a third tax mm -hmm. cuts that therefore, it was a third funding of unfunded mandates to the states, which they'd been railing about since the Newt Gingrich era, and a third originally infrastructure and research and development spending, which they said they were for. That part got cut back a lot, obviously. Um, and I asked one of the leaders, I said, well, you know, what, what could be in the stimulus um, that would make you support it. It seems like these are pretty Republican-friendly ideas. And the person said, you're asking the wrong question. The question is if it works, uh, Obama's going to get all the credit for it. And if it doesn't work, we don't want any part of it. And I literally, I mean, this was that, that Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment for me of like imagining, I know there's partisanship, but you really believe underneath that there's some statesmanship. There's mm -hmm. some sense of a race publica, of a commitment to, uh, to fixing the country and to have that crass... Uh, of a political analysis at that moment that they literally could not, even uh, with the 
possibility of a depression at stake uh, rise above that to to do what was good for the country. And it was, you know, it, it just was spelled out to me very clearly early on. In the stimulus itself, there were really interesting debates to be had. Um, they were, uh, as you know, some of us pushed for uh, um, what I would call a more transformative stimulus. Yeah. Um, one that if you basically felt like everything in the economy was working until 2008, then you just needed to jolt the economy back to 2008. If you believe that this had been a 20-year hollowing out to some extent of, of uh, the middle class, growth of inequality, disappearance of work, at least living wage work, then the kind of stimulus you design is very different. Um, there was a clear view from from the White House of which one of those to do, which was partly about sequencing and other things. So, I mean, in some ways, it, it was a fascinating debate playing well, out. What in was real the time. pushback when you said we needed to be more transformative? Was it just that we don't have time? Um, it was three or four different uh, pushbacks. Um, so there was the political reality issue, which said, you know, we need to get this through. Um, and we and need we are going to artificially say it has to be low, below a trillion dollars, even yeah. though the economists say it should be one point three trillion. There was a sequencing argument that said, you know, we're this is going to be so popular and successful that we'll simply come back later um, for uh, <laughs> another tranche. Um, <laughs> that didn't work uh, out. If, if needed, yeah. Um, and then there was a substantive critique, which is that I do think ultimately there were. Uh, the core economic thinking inside was more that we need to jolt the economy back to 2008. Uh, there was a belief among many that the infrastructure ultimately was um, more about Congress wanting to bring things back to their district, even though in what I think is an incredible and underreported act of statesmanship, there were zero earmarks. So I think there were those who said, well, it's right now. Some of this stuff will take two or three years. We need shovel ready. And I think for some of us, we were saying – Yes, but we're not going to be out of this in 12 months. This is a much deeper recession and a deeper problem. So we need that second wave built in so that we don't come back two years from now still having – When you voted on it uh, and it ultimately passed with no Republicans in the House and only a few in the Senate, uh, in that moment, did you realize that it wasn't going to be this you know, widely praised piece of legislation that would propel you to reelection? No, I don't think we – um, any of us really imagined that this was locking up re-election with this vote. I think we thought we were preventing a depression. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It would be one thing if the stimulus was the only major issue that you confronted upon entering office, but 
you then had financial regulatory reform, you had the issue with AIG, you had uh, cap and trade legislation in that first year or so. And July I'm wonder- 4th weekend. <laughs> well, <laughs> I have a theory that the cap and trade bill was the most difficult one or the most consequential one for you in terms of politics. Is that fair? was an incredibly influential year for if you're going to pick two years to be in Congress, those were definitely <laughs> the two years to pick. Um, uh, and the vote for uh, cap and trade was one of the first ones where I would say I was not only casting a vote, but part of the conversation, um, part of shaping it, part of um, encouraging others to walk the plank with me for what was seen as a, a you know politically challenging vote. Um, and then going out and selling it. And I think that was, um, for me, uh, the most interesting part of that bill was actually the combination. The stimulus didn't have nearly as much of the stuff as I would have liked on research and development and infrastructure, but there was definitely stuff there. Yeah. So our feeling was that this isn't just about passing the cap-and-trade bill. This was about going out every weekend and spending time with farmers, literally in the muck, talking about whether you could turn cow manure into power and then bringing in the money and the grants to do it. And we did that. And I think sometimes if I have a critique of democratic and liberal establishment, it's that we want the technocratic fix that's brilliant and then can't you – know, and just want people to be smart enough, quote unquote, to, to figure out how yeah. brilliant it was for them. Um, and the fact is sometimes it's not that brilliant. You back to the cap-and-trade bill. I mean yeah. it, it's so complex because it was done on the House and there was no guarantees. Obviously, there wasn't that the Senate would ever take it up and they didn't. And it put you out on a, on a limb basically. Uh, sure. Um, no, I mean, seriously, because no, no. you were, it, it was a very tough vote for you, obviously. Your your district, you know, it has jobs that were going to be affected by the bill, and clearly it was politically problematic. So talk about what was going through your head as you voted for it. I think that the, I can give you the unfair answer, but it's true. And sure. <laughs> the unfair answer is there was no way on the biggest existential threat to humanity and the planet that I'm going to actually consider that a tough vote in the end of the day. And it was designed in a way that was incredibly soft on, among other things, the coal industry. Uh, The coal industry actually would have done far better under cap and trade than it's done in the absence of it because they were able to build in so much transitional support uh, as well as clean coal technology support, whether or not one believes in that. Um, And the fact is it was, again, a very kind of Republican free market approach. I probably would have supported a a tax-shifting mechanism of a payroll tax to carbon tax, you know, something in there. Uh, I think there are a number of reasons that can be cleaner um, uh, as a matter of incentive and and policy. So, yes, it was seen as extremely um, difficult politically, but – I'll tell you the happy end of the story, which is there was a poll run on election day asking who do you trust most on energy issues, and in a heavily Republican district where they hit me heavily on cap and trade, I won that issue by 24 percent over my opponent. Um, And uh, so I think in the end of the day, I don't actually believe, um, and there's data to back this up, uh, that it cost me. What were those conversations like? What were those where you would go out to a farmer in the muck and talk about how 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 to convert, I guess, cow manure into energy (laughs) (laughs) uh well i mean the great thing about it of course is that um people are a hell of a lot smarter and more creative in their thinking than uh people give them credit for and they know stuff that i don't have a clue about 
right? I mean, one of the most enjoyable things that happened was we brought uh, Secretary Chu down to meet with this a, is the former Energy Secretary, right. yeah. Um, and Secretary Chu is not a politician. He is not someone <laughs> I'm guessing who has spent a lot of time farming or hunting in Southside Virginia. Um, and so there were people who were like, I don't think this is going to be a good match with him going down there. <laughs> and he started to geek out with these guys like you. I mean, farming, these guys all go to Virginia Tech. They're incredibly you know, creative, the mechanic side of it, uh, whether or not you have the degree. And they just started geeking out on this stuff about the angle. Oh, did you try this? Did you try that? And it was just really fun to watch. You and had nothing to say. I have <laughs> I just smiled for the camera. You're like, I brought you together. (laughs) Um, And, you know, and he was then able, because he had the credibility and they had the credibility of knowing their craft, so to speak, uh, to be able to really then get into what the bill does. And people understood the basics, which is uh, that we spend an awful lot of money um, at the tank. And it doesn't stay in the community. And this went to the next level thing, which, uh, you know, George Packer picked up on, which is this guy with the truck stop and Mm -hmm. uh, trying to make uh, biodiesel where, you know, he figured out that you go to the pump, one of your biggest expenses all week in a very poor community and 93 cents of every dollar immediately leaves the community. Can that really make sense? Um, And that's when you get into a really creative thing. And I think that was the missed opportunity. I think we did the beginning of a true transformation of something that could radically and positively transform the job Mm -hmm. situation here with the new energy economy. And we kind of took that step out and didn't didn't. I was that was something that I was really curious about, because it's it's like you're asking people to to not only accept this new cultural shift, but it's a cultural shift. It's not the that your town isn't going to be centered around the factory anymore. It's going to be around these smaller 10-person jobs, these green jobs that you're talking about. Well, and it's relevant now because I feel like we're going through a debate about things like driverless cars that reminds me a lot of the NAFTA debate from the 90s, which is, oh, it's going to be great. All those people who used to make furniture will become computer programmers. And no one bothered to ask whether they actually want to be computer yeah. programmers. Some people really like to make things with their hands, or some people may not have the ability to go have the same skill set or space to get that uh, uh, that make that transition. Um, so, with something like the locally grown movement, is very different than the idea of a ten person, you know, boutique tech shop, right? If you pitch it as organic farming, it sounds very elite and snooty. If you talk about locally grown farming, it's something people can understand when you're adding up the value chain. Um, But the fact is it's complicated, and this is ultimately uh, part of what I walked away um, frustrated with myself about for those two years is the question, do we have an answer? Do elites in particular have an answer to what's driving inequality and joblessness in the United States? And I think, uh, you know, we really have not fully grappled with uh, how deep that runs. But I think that you were you were close to that answer. I mean, you had done what a Democrat was supposed to do. You brought um, these sort of stimulus jobs, millions in grants uh, towards the future economy as opposed to trying to revive the old economy. Um, and it, it was interesting in contrast when you think about what Trump is saying now. It's like, well, they're just bad deals. I'm going to make better deals. I'm wondering, like, why, do you think that you were close to figuring it out? And what was the feedback you got from people in the community? I think results matter to people. Um, and I think for a while we were getting enough momentum that it was starting to break down the skepticism. Um, and frankly, people have good reason when they hear an idea is coming from Washington to say, prove it. And I think we were in the 5th District. And then came health care reform, which was not 
as simple as we can bring jobs here and so on and so forth. It was a complex restructuring of the healthcare market and the insurance market. Um, it was that was must have been grueling the the year plus that it took to put that together and and I'm guess if I, I don't even remember that you don't remember you blocked out no yeah that was a thing was it called? <laughs> uh, what was the pressure like from your party leadership to get on board that bill um the 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 debate was one of the most intense things I've ever lived through uh, I didn't feel it primarily as leadership from the top I do think that. Um, the House leadership was incredibly impressive in a number of ways. Um, and people have to remember, yes, Speaker Pelosi was and deserves credit for being the chief among chiefs, but it was really a troika of her and Hoyer and Waxman, Clyburn. And Waxman um, too, yeah. Well, certainly on the bill. Yeah. Um, and people always wondered if, uh, you know, how tough the showdowns were with Pelosi. I was like, the call you didn't want to get was from James Clyburn. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> well, he was the, well, the whip at the son time. son of a preacher. Yeah. Uh, he was part of the struggle back in the day. Uh, you know, but, uh, <laughs> Did the, you get one of those calls? We, we had conversations. I mean, generally speaking. <laughs> what were they like? Uh, Come on, this confessional. <laughs> yeah, the confessional. Um, no, the, um, look, I think that the, the, other, the nice thing about the leadership, which was the biggest surprise, and then I will – sort of answer your question, uh, <laughs> we gonna... was I, I expected to have no access to leadership as a first-term yeah. uh, congressperson. And they – I mean it was it was unfiltered access. I was shocked. Uh, and part of it is they, uh, they're they good at what they do. Uh, Speaker Pelosi had a breakfast every week and it was a real substantive one giving feedback from the uh, freshman Hoyer and, and Clyburn were both extremely available when needed. Uh, Clyburn came down to my district and knows – you know, having come from South Carolina, some of the dynamics that uh, that I was facing. So, you know, the fact is they never lost a vote. Um, and those those included some very difficult uh, votes coming down the stretch. Um, I think that part of what I was trying to figure out at the time, and I still don't have a good answer because luckily for my soul, I wasn't in there very long. Um, but, uh, you know, what is it, how good does a bill have to be to vote for? So I think there are two you know, questions that any that a everyone from academics to people who've actually served ask. One is, do you should your vote reflect your conscience or should it reflect uh, your constituency? And the second is, how imperfect uh, does a bill need to be before you can vote before you vote for it or against it? And those are you know they're they're essentially judgment calls. You know, Obamacare was the uh, I voted obviously the first time for one with a public option in it, which I think was a much stronger bill. Um, at what point, you know, is uh, um, is the bill good enough? Um, well, when it comes out of the Senate, and Scott Brown's elected, so now they can't, they have to basically go with the Senate bill, right, which doesn't have the public option. Just want to set this up for the listeners. And it comes to the House, and I remember this, that uh, the question before the House was, do you suck it up, But right? I mean, that's more or less. Like, do you swallow your pride and take what many thought was a half loaf? And uh, I don't think it's been sort of uh, discussed what those conversations were like in that specific moment from people like Representative Clyburn. But I'm guessing he was persuasive. You voted for the bill. Well, and in that case, uh, there was – I got uh, a conversation with the president and I think one of the things that people appreciated about my approach was uh, I never went 
into those conversations looking to horse trade. It was not, hey, you know, if you give me this visit to my district or whatever. It was substance. You didn't want the Nebraska kickback, um, whatever the hell was. No, that was. Uh, it was the Cornhusker. The Cornhusker, Cornhusker kickback, right. the Charlottesville. Well, I mean, it uh, we can think of something great. like that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and I think that, that people, uh, I don't know what, he would be like in a conversation where it is about that. Um, but with me, you know, these are deeply serious people who are willing to talk about the bill. You know, it, it's, you know, there was a question of whether, if not the public option, could there be sort of a Medicare plus 10 kind of buy-in sure. for people of 50, et cetera. Um, and I think with a, with the ACA or Obamacare, um, there was a, there was, there is uh, a pretty credible argument that says once you get the structure in place, there are lots of ways to build improvements into it with greater consumer protection for uh, patients and against price gouging and other things. Uh, we've just got to change to a different structure. Um, and, you know, that'll be tested here over the next 10 years. Or was so. that the argument that won you over or was it this is history and you won't get another bite at this apple or both maybe? Yeah, I mean – I Look, I was, uh, as I said to my constituents many times, I, I, I am trying to get to yes on this bill. I wanted to support health care reform. Uh, I think we did worry, some of us, uh, that it was such a complex system and that without some of these bright line rules there, um, that it was going to be um, uh, leave a lot to the implementation. But obviously that continues. What to was come. the case Clyburn made to you specifically? He wants to know about this Clyburn I wanted to yell at you or <laughs> – uh, that wasn't. I don't actually think that was on the, um, you yeah. know, the ACA bill. I think that uh, I'm trying to remember now. Seniority, uh, just, like I've the, been the here figure forever. of him looms large yeah, yeah. more than uh, the substance of the conversation. Um, but if you know, well, I know was, th- he was evoking a lot of the civil rights era stuff when he was making That's the right. case for the ACA. I wonder if that came up. I think one of the arguments he made to me that I remember, I think we were, uh, I was trying to force something later, and he just, he just laughed at me. He was like, Tom, do you think for one second I think you're not going to support this bill? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was about the DREAM Act or whatever. And all I was trying to do was to get a pledge from them that the Senate was going to move on it. Uh, uh, not because I wasn't going to support it, but because the Senate, you know, slept on like 400 of the bills that we had passed. And uh, so, yeah, he, he had read my... My he called your book pretty badly. So uh, shortly after the ACA passes, um, but, but, but oh, even sorry. leading up to that, there was still pressure. You were getting phone calls every day, emails, robocalls, like leading up to the vote. Did you feel pressure from the other side, the Republicans, or from people in your in the community in <clears throat> various parts of Virginia to vote against it? Yeah, or, I mean, your last question was more of a Beltway question, and I yeah. gave a Beltway answer. But in in the real noted. world, it was. <laughs> 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 Um, but in the real world, it was incredibly intense and personal. Um, it was uh, brutal, um, brutal. Uh, and I respect and believe that many of my constituents genuinely thought this was going to be uh, the death of the Constitution and, and uh, the death of their health coverage and, and as they knew it. Um, and there were others for whom this was life or death for it to pass. Uh, there are people who've been working 30 or 40 years organizing to get something like universal health care. Um, and then this was, of course, at the point when the um, uh, the Tea Party had really started to take root. And, you know, it was a lot of vitriolic racism. I was getting spit on. My staff was getting kicked. We were getting calls uh, using the N-word every day. Um, People were very comfortable in, you know, very professional settings saying, you know, there's nothing for white people in this bill. Why are you supporting it? 
uh, there was not subtlety, uh, which is not to say that there were not people who obviously raised genuine substantive concerns about uh, about the bill. But it was I mean, we're talking about like veins popping out of the neck uh, mm-hmm. vitriol. How do you respond to that? I mean, I don't even know what you would say to the person who's like, where's the shit for white people or even getting spit on? I don't even how do you even. Yeah. Well, how you do you know, not take a swing at the person that spits on you. I've done a lot of work on conflict resolution and transitional <laughs> justice overseas. I never quite thought I would be applying those skills uh, back home, and it was really uh, it was it was sad. Um, the it takes a lot of reserve. So one of the things we had to do, of course, this got pretty well documented. We had called these town hall meetings, one in each of the counties, um, which meant we were doing either twenty two or twenty four of them, yeah. and. Um, we had to basically start employing uh, conflict resolution tactics. And the first one we had to do was simply say, I'm not leaving till everyone's asked their question, which sounds really simple, but these literally averaged six hours in length. Um, so we did over 100 hours that month. Um, and we, you know, in a situation like that, cutting someone off uh, or trying to limit quite anything that um, uh, that makes a person feel like they're somehow being uh, victimized or silenced um, is escalatory. We knew there were people with guns, and you know, this is part of the country I come from. Um, and you know, of course, to their credit, the vast majority of people stepped up to the plate and were substantive and relatively civil. Um, but these were intense. Uh, these were intense did, events. Did you to train your staff in conflict resolution too to not sort of act out or to not blow off steam at some of these? You know, folks, when they get the vitriol that, that you maybe aim for you. Yeah, I mean, we had to look at uh, exits and go over exit plans and options, walking into scenarios. We had to change several venues. Um, and unfortunately, of course, part of what happened with this, uh, well, again, I'm very glad we did it, is that within the first two, anyone who might actually be an undecided person who simply wanted to learn more about the bill didn't show up. Right. The only people who are showing up to that are folks who are there to make a point on one side uh, or the other. Um, and uh, I drank a lot of Diet Dr. Pepper. Uh, <laughs> we would go. I remember. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's probably not a, a great story for now. But the um, uh, yeah. So it was an important thing. And, and here, here's an interesting um, tactical question. So on the one hand, the town hall meeting is sort of the ultimate example of, of American democracy at its most grassroots level. Who would have thought you would have 1,200 people showing up for a six-hour discussion about Obamacare um, back and forth over an entire month? So in that month, I think we figured out was you know 15,000 people or something had attended events. That's a massive number for a single district. We then went back and did a teletown hall uh, where you dialed directly into people's homes uh, on it. And we had over 15,000 people there with nobody yelling at each other. A vast majority were people who were undecided because you'd simply caught them at dinner and they were interested. So, you know, on the one hand, I think I owe it, a a representative owes it to their constituents to go back. Um, But it's also true that um, part of, I think, creating a civic space is making sure it's not just the loudest voices that you hear. And the loudest voices, the people who feel most entitled to speak up and speak up loudly tend to be white men. Um, So it's not uncommon that you will go into a situation when I didn't – before I really got smarter about this and be like, oh, my goodness, every one of these business owners is against this bill um, because five people spoke up against it. And then they start coming to you afterwards and it tends to be – uh, you know, more the women business leaders and people of color who were like, I didn't want to speak up there, but just so you know, this would be great for our business. Were you afraid that you were actually creating a forum 
for the most angriest guy to like intimidate everybody else because like you would have people coming in afterwards saying like hey this is not so bad yeah and we designed a, a pattern again this is based somewhat on the work i do overseas too right you i think they're uh, you don't want to be a diplomat that goes and just meets with the president and just meets with um, the head of the opposition. You want to meet more broadly, right? And the same thing here. So in those days, from 7 in the morning until 5 in the afternoon, I was meeting in other forums. They didn't get the attention. They didn't get the cameras. But you were going yeah. to the hospital to meet with nurses. You were meeting with small business owners and others. And then the cameras come in at night and catch that part. I mean, this was all very serious. But then it takes an even more serious turn uh, with the incident with your brother where I believe it was a propane line uh, was cut off after his address was posted on some Tea Party forum. Um, what was that like? Uh Surreal is the only word that can describe it. Um, so, yeah, they said, let's take the fight to Tom's house, but then couldn't get my address right, so I put up my brother's address. He had four young kids at the time below the age of 10. They're a little older now. Um, and he's a high school teacher and coach. And um, that night before, all the outdoor lights were stolen. And, we, I mean, we still – this has never been solved, so – you know, didn't know what to think of that. Came home the next day between teaching and coaching, and the house was full of gas, and the line was cut. And the investigators still don't know, but uh, the you know they certainly went out and investigated who who had done such a thing. It's uh, not a neighborhood where such things happen often, or that that's a crime that necessarily makes sense. But um, you know, we can't know. But it was. Um, uh, Capitol Police, everyone else came down, uh, Fox and MSNBC and everyone's uh, in the, in the, at the end of the driveway filming the house. Uh, my sister-in-law is joking. How you find out about if it? If they can ever <laughs> sell the house, they can say, as featured in the New York Times, <laughs> the picture was in the New York Times. Um, and uh, my brother was calling me at one point the next day. He's like, um, yeah, I, uh, I never thought I'd say this to you, Tom, but um, uh, my daughter just threw up on the FBI agent in my house uh, because <laughs> of your, your job. Um, and uh, so, you know, it was obviously uh, serious. Um, How'd you hear about it? I heard about it from him. He um, called you up? Yeah. And he, I mean, he, it was it was still sort of processing. He's like, I'm sure this is not, you know, it was that uh, spidey sense of something really weird is going on here. Incidents were starting around the country. One of the most interesting uh, caucus uh, meetings that I was in was right about that time when all these incidents were starting to pick up. And they brought us all together and kind of went through some of the MOs about how to respond when death threats and other things come in. And, you know, some of the leaders said, you know, obviously they get death threats all the time, so they're used to it, and here's the protocol. And there was this process, I think, with both leadership, uh, other than Clyburn for obvious reasons that I'll explain, and um, and the police of, of, of explaining, no, you guys aren't hearing us. And this was coming primarily, I think, from, uh, from the African-American uh, caucus, the Black Caucus, um, which is the difference between, and this is something, you know, we track overseas in here too, the difference between one-off things and the issue about where a culture of violence or lawlessness or vigilantism is being slowly validated. And that's a very different space, right? That's what you saw during the peak of the civil rights movement was that there were uh, 
credible establishment white figures who were validating the idea that something was happening outside the law, therefore people needed to take things into their own hands. And I think there was sort of a, a light bulb moment, I think, for some that, that this was not just the idea that, oh, there might be a crazy guy who did this, uh, that this is something we'd seen before. Um, and again, I think it's uh, obviously um, was, a, was a scary time for everyone involved. And, um, you know, it was a time where most people in the Virginia delegation, um, with with one exception, um, on the Republican side, were very clear and you know wanted to, to come in, and and we were trying to get people to just simply make more responsible statements. What there Wait, was, who a, was the one exception? Yes, <coughs> Mr. Cantor. I'll leave his <laughs> confessions to uh, to another. Uh, We've another tried to book him for this podcast. So this happens, uh, and all the while your re-election campaign is ramping up, right? I mean, and was there a sense of this is just too many issues on the docket? I'm being overwhelmed by it all. I can't have enough town hall or tele-town halls to convince enough voters. Maybe one issue I could do it, but not three. Do you get a sense of uh, fatalism about your campaign ever? No, I think we had such a clear sense of what we were trying to do, um, and I think the team that, that came together, um, yes, I was the, the principal, so to speak, but it was really a team that understood. The first campaign wasn't about winning per se. It's not like I had dreamed of being in, in the House of Representatives. It was about testing. Oh, stop. <laughs> Everyone that was, yeah, I mean, Universal dream. Go ahead. There's it was children's dream. books based yeah. on that concept. <laughs> No, it was about testing a theory of change. And at the time, there was a presumption that districts like this couldn't be won. And if they were going to be won, it was by trying to run a Republican light campaign. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of us that were sick and tired of that. And we thought that it, it denigrated the constituents themselves who were smarter than that. And they care about conviction and they understand that the system is rigged. Um, so it was never a question about selling out in the first campaign because what would that have gotten me? A House seat as another person in there with like a, you know, mushy whatever message. Um, so it was built into the structure of our team and our strategy that we were trying to test what we called conviction politics. And in many ways, the reelection was – then the next question was, could you legislate with conviction? And then the next question was, uh, could you get reelected with conviction? As the climate got worse, more or less, with these issues weighing down the party, was there ever, I don't know, an impulse to moderate yourself or to soften your image or to maybe tack a little bit to the right ideologically – in a way that could present yourself more uh, softly to the voters of the faith. I mean, in, in, well, <laughs> yeah, I was endorsed by the NRA. I yeah, know. I want to get to that too. It's, yeah. it's in bold in our questions yeah, yeah. here. So, uh, um, and uh, so, ask your questions. Well, yeah. that, but the, hold on. My question first, which is, did you have, was that impulse there? I mean, you, and was it hard to fight? I think that the. Um, We'll give you an example that happened. You, you were saying earlier that you thought cap-and-trade was the killer for me. I think uh, for many people it was the combination of cap-and-trade and health care. There were people yeah. who said, you know, I didn't agree with you on cap-and-trade, but I respected your vote. But then when you did health care too, it started to feel more like you were representing Nancy Pelosi than, um, uh, you know, than, than us. Uh, and I, you know, I respect that sentiment. Uh, voters are smart. They're going to draw their own judgments. Um, but I think that you know, that cumulative effect can be a lot. And the 
you know, part of it, too, was the question of the votes that come in front of you um, and what opportunities you have to do that. I mean, to me, part of what I didn't buy was the left-right spectrum as it had been defined in the 1990s. Yeah. So in my mind, going for a bigger stimulus, which is what I wanted, was not something that was more left. It was just more Main Street. But certainly there were elements in your district, the politics of your district, that were pressuring you here. And so the NRA endorsement in that context, you know, that was a huge get for you, right? Because culturally, very significant institution. Uh, certainly it would have been terrible if they campaigned against you from a political standpoint. But here you are as a sort of, you know, progressive hero, and now you're, you know, touting the NRA endorsement. It seems like, you know, there's a contrast there somewhat. Yeah, I think that, and I think the politics of uh, gun safety has changed a lot in the subsequent years, and some of that is based on. Um, I, I don't want to. Uh, the the NRA has a very clear policy. If you are an incumbent and you vote with them, they will endorse you. Um, and part of what's fascinating, you should talk to them sometime, was how um, much they got backed into a corner, in part by the Democratic leaderships refusing to bring up any votes that were NRA votes except one that had to do, I think, with concealed carry in national parks or something. So by limiting the number of times that many of the Democrats who wanted that endorsement uh, or might think they benefit from that endorsement, and again, I think those politics have probably changed, um, you know, the fact was, and I'd be the first to admit this, just, uh, that, you know, had those had a different set of gun laws come up, uh, it would have been a different situation. I mean, it's not like I wouldn't have supported uh, the Toomey Mansion, you know, bill if it had come up, and then you're not getting the NRA endorsement. Um, and so it was some smart politics. And the NRA, uh, to their credit, uh, was good to their word on that, and they took a lot of heat. You can imagine there were an awful lot of NRA members in the district yeah. who were pretty uh, displeased to uh, um, to to see that blaze orange your, your opponent uh, being one of them uh, yeah. showing <laughs> up uh, in that way. But had you been running in 2014, what you're saying is you never would have gotten the NRA endorsement. Uh, yes. Yeah. I think it's fair to say for a variety of reasons about the votes that were presented. In the end, you know, maybe what hindered your re-election chances was just that you had a D next to your name, and it was a terrible year for Democrats. Uh, I always believe that things are my fault because I'm Catholic, but uh, <laughs> in this case, I think there's a there's a fairly compelling argument for that. Um, in fact, you know, one of my favorite stories from this time was it was my lame duck period. I had lost, but I was still in office, and I was driving down uh, 81, actually, and um, pulled into a McDonald's. And uh, this guy came over and he's like, I just I just want to shake your hand. Um, and I said, well, thank you. He's like, I just never thought I would meet uh, an honorable politician, a person that, you know, uh, that I, I could really respect. Would you mind shaking my son's hand and, and taking a picture with him? And because uh, I just want him to know that uh, that there's still good people out there. And so the son comes over, and he's about to click the picture, and he goes, oh, by the way, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, that, that's certainly a lot nicer way of putting that than I'm used to hearing, uh, but can I ask you why? And he said, you know, a vote for you is a vote for Nancy Pelosi, and I believe she's a truly evil human being. Um, and, you know, it's on the one hand, uh, I think you can see that as unfortunate uh, or – uh, silly, but the fact is that's a pretty sophisticated voter because for the most part, if you're sitting in Southern Virginia, whether John Boehner or Nancy Pelosi is the speaker probably has more impact today on the 
on the agenda than whether Robert Hurd or Tom Perriello is representing your district. If it's a national election and it's very clear towards the end of the election that Democrats are going to be, you know, overtaken in a, in a wave here, why bring President Obama to your district with a week to go? Uh, I think there were a number of reasons um, to do so. Uh, I think in that case we believed conveniently that our deepest convictions aligned with smart politics. Uh, so there were people who felt like those were different and therefore that we were making a, a statement of conviction and conviction led. I mean even if I thought it was bad politics, I would have done it. Um, for a lot of people in my district, particularly in the African-American community, there was no ambiguity about what was being done to the president and why. Um, and there's a long history of, if I can be honest, white Southern Democrats throwing them under the bus the first time it's convenient to do so. Um, and I marched with these guys through neighborhoods. I, we you know, organized. We tried to get people registered to vote. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, when conservatives talk about blacks not caring about black on black crime, I'm like, have you ever spent time in these neighborhoods? Yeah. I mean, the number of midnight marches I mm -hmm. got asked to do uh, in these neighborhoods. Um, and, uh, you know, to me it was important uh, because of what it meant to, to not just many of my constituents, but many of my constituents who had had uh, the least voice and the most marginalization uh, over time. Um, and to be honest, uh, on the tactical side, we needed big base turnout too. Yeah. Um, and we hadn't run away from the base, and I think that's why we outperformed uh, so many other races across the country. Our, we hit our win number. Uh, we actually hit uh, our targets of what we thought we would need, um, and the other side just uh, also got their base out, and their base is bigger in my district. Could an unabashed progressive win in the South again? Absolutely. Um, obviously, this is a year of tectonic shifts in our politics, um, and I think that that a lot of the rules are changing. I think, for one thing, people are realizing that the, the biggest group of swing voters are the voters that don't show up. And for years, that was a mythical unicorn in politics. Everyone's like, oh, we're going to be the first campaign to actually get non-voters to vote. I mean, the 90s, the odd years, it was constantly mm -hmm. the refrain from the Democrats, and it never worked. Um, and that was in part because I think the Democrats thought the way to do do it was to water down good ideas instead of come up with bold well, that, ideas. Well, that happened with Wendy Davis. She kind of watered down some of her ideas, and she said it on her podcast. And there was that mythical, let's just – all we have to do is get people who don't vote to vote to come out. Uh, and they, they actually didn't at all. Yeah. I mean it was a disaster. But I think this is where, you know, uh, again, Trump and Sanders are clearly bringing some of those people into the process. Um, and I think uh, – you know, it's and some of it is directly structural, right? I mean, yeah. Terry McAuliffe gets a lot of credit for just restoring the rights of 200,000 former yeah. felons in Virginia. So you hit your win number uh, and you still lost. And I'm wondering if part of you is or felt nervous the night of your loss and thereafter that people would take the wrong lesson from it, that they would say, "Ooh, you know, he was too boldly out there and too aligned with Obama and lost, uh, maybe we shouldn't do that, and maybe we should go back to sort of the DLC centrist model. Blue dog. The blue yeah. dog model. Well, in a way, that would have been a good problem to have because it would have meant a lot of the DLC uh, blue dogs had survived the night, but the fact is they got wiped out, <laughs> yeah. which uh, I know there are some progressives that think that was positive, but holding the house would have been a, a, a little bit better probably. Uh, yeah. So, uh, no, I mean, I think it was – the nature of the, the scope and scale of the defeat made that argument a lot harder, uh, and I think the closeness of our race as well. 
um, Axelrod was extremely interested and took a lot of time with me afterwards to try to learn the right lessons from the race. This is David Axelrod, David the president's advisor. Um, and I, you know, I think they they looked at a whole lot of data points from that year in part to make um, to see that a more populist message going into 2012 was a positive one. What did Axelrod ask you? You know, when you when you met with him, what, what did he kind of? What were the questions he had? I'm curious. I mean, you know, he's a he's a political genius, and he asked all the questions you would imagine about why we had made certain decisions and what we thought the reactions had been and how we thought certain things had played. And uh, you know, I think we had always appreciated a good relationship with the White House, in part because we had taken tough votes, but when we hadn't, we had done so on on principle. Um, so we talked numbers, uh, we talked strategy, and I'm sure he did that with a thousand other yeah. people. So I don't okay. want to overplay the conversation. <laughs> sure. uh, but it meant a lot to me. Not a thousand, yeah, but maybe yeah. 434. Uh, I told them to make that Romney ad with him um, singing. I thought that would be great. One of the uh, one of the other great moments, actually, in the reelect was uh, um, this woman came up to me at a, a Fourth of July event. I guess we we went up early with some uh, to try to counter some stuff in that summer, and uh, this woman uh, came up to me and her. Uh, usually happened in reverse gender wise where it was the guy being embarrassing but in this case she was uh she spit on me she said she thought i was a communist uh she um uh hated what i was doing to america I was just fuming and started to stomp away and then she turned and goes oh but by the way i love your tv ads <laughs> oh uh, my god so we had still run these pretty why did fun you get oh. spit on so much or was the like spit that... was it the spit more of a spray or was it like a it was, loogie it was it was like unclear if it was meant to hit me or not it was okay. like you okay. know um what, how your yeah. older brother sometimes throws darts at your feet, but like oh, miss intentionally, yeah, yeah, but yeah. still make you jump. Jeez. So it might have been in that uh, okay. in that space. So disgusting. If you if you had a, a chance to sit down with someone thinking about running for Congress in a Southern state. Uh, who wants to run as a Democrat, uh, what advice would you give him or her? If there's something you care enough about to more or less risk everything that you have, uh, run and make that the central, of your, central issue in your campaign and you can't lose. Because if you do nothing else other than speak to your deepest values for a year, um, then you've at least made the best case you can for something you care about. If there's nothing you care about that much, you probably shouldn't run um, because it is going to require uh, an enormous amount of discomfort on uh, all sorts of levels. I will say you do seem, of all the people we've interviewed, probably the most at ease with your loss. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> again, it was. I think it was not something where I was looking to – I, I didn't think of myself even at the time as a politician. I thought of myself as a justice entrepreneur who was using politics to test a theory of change, sure. um, which really comes across well. Yeah, but you came this like I you became this ve- yeah, was- you became this vessel for all these progressives who were like, oh yes, you got to do it this way, you know. But I think that mattered. I actually do think that that was a small ripple in a pond that has helped to reinforce the growth of a movement on uh, inequality and more economic populism. Again, just one small pebble in that. But one of the things about me being in that I realized relatively quickly was that the bar is set so low on authenticity and standing up for your values in politics that you really get graded (laughs) on a curve. Uh, So yeah, we did become a, a, a symbol 
and I think symbolism matters. I think that everything from uh, you know the role of art and social movements to the role of the Batman symbol. There's a reason you come back to these things. Symbols matter, and at certain moments, uh, individuals or teams uh, or campaigns become uh, vessels for uh, for that. And I think at the moment there was a sense in the 2010 race that all these folks had put all their hopes into uh, this new Democratic majority in the Obama administration, and they seemed to see an awful lot of people they had worked very hard for not standing up for that. Um, and I'm really proud that we did, and I'm really proud of what we accomplished, and I don't regret uh, losing it all. Plus, I've had an incredible um, – it's to me, part of the success story, if you're talking to someone, is look at what it's enabled me to do since then. You know, I've helped uh, be a voice in the progressive movement across a number of issues I care about, um, voting rights, criminal justice reform, inequality. Right now, I'm helping to support a peace process in the African Great Lakes region, um, one of the most troubled areas in the world, uh, meeting incredibly courageous Burundians and Congolese each day. Um, you know, and I think that because people seemed to believe that uh, I was coming to this with uh, conviction. They wanted to find new ways to apply that. So in my own small way, I think it's been uh, it's been a success. That was Tom Perriello on his congressional bid during the Tea Party wave of the 2010 elections. Big thanks, as always, to Christine Canetta, the editor of this podcast, who makes us sound good for the listeners. You can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or on HuffingtonPost.com, as I implore you every week. Find random strangers on the street, tell them to subscribe, tell them to rate the show. It's a way to make friends. Exactly. So next week, we bring you Gary Johnson, the former governor of New Mexico, who is here to discuss his 2012 bid for the White House. I describe it as a emotional tour de force. I would say if you're if you're jogging while listening to it, it'll fit perfectly because he just talks about jogging a lot. Exactly. Okay. Until then, dear listener, happy trails.
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 